Welcome to podcast number 56 for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. Christmas is just around the corner and if you need a last minute gift, then don't look past Michael Veach's latest book. Joining us on the line from Melbourne is best-selling author, actor, broadcaster and RAAF Reserve Officer Michael Veach. Michael, many thanks for joining us. Always a great pleasure to talk to you, David. Now, we, we actually had the pleasure of talking to you back in February this year for your book, The Battle of the Bismarck Sea, The Forgotten Battle That Saved the Pacific. And obviously, you've been very busy, and I was able to get <laughs> to your book launch in August for your new book, which is Great. titled Australia's Secret Army, The Story of Coast Watchers in, a, in World War II. What was our secret army? Um, <clears throat> well, I actually didn't know. It was a secret to me as well for someone who's uh, read and studied Australia's efforts in the Pacific during, during the Second World War. And this is the story of the Coast Watchers. Now, I'd always known of the Coast Watchers, but not known anything really about them. And I assumed, as their rather deceptive title suggested, they were a very passive band of fellows that just basically watch the coast. But uh, as I went into the research of this, I discovered it was so much more. And to my shame, I was actually quite ashamed that I didn't know of this remarkable group of essentially civilians who suddenly had to pivot into being spies behind enemy lines. Um, the stories, the, the stage of this story is the arc of islands to Australia's north, stretching from the northwest, I guess, uh, to from uh, Rabaul on the big island of New Britain, which is part of New Guinea, in fact, the port of the port city and capital of Rabaul was then the capital of New Guinea itself before Port Moresby became the capital, but that was after the war. And the other end of the stage is down in the Solomon. So it's this arc stretching from kind of um, like if you're looking at the, if, if it was a clock from about uh, half past 10 on the clock to about 4 p.m. on the clock going around Australia's, uh, that arc of Australia's northern uh, northern coast. Um, the story of what we were doing there is interesting in itself as a bit of background, David. What indeed was Australia doing in these places? Well, it goes to the strange story of how after World War One we acquired uh, as these sort of colonial gifts these islands. Like, people forget that New Guinea was actually, parts of New Guinea, New Guinea at least, were Australian territory, which is why the militia boys who went to fight the great battle and campaign of Kokoda could be conscripted, whereas the fellows who went over to Africa had to be all volunteers. But the militia, the reserve, essentially, could be conscripted because, bizarrely, that big chunk of New Guinea where Moresby is and also where the islands of New Britain and New Ireland are were considered Australian territory. And this came about because 
it always goes back very, very briefly. I'll just touch to this, to the 1880s, where there was the scramble for colonization. And Germany was one of the last colonial um, uh, uh, European powers who actually decided they wanted to have a colonist because their country had only become a country in, um, in 1870. And they felt themselves way behind the eight ball of France and Britain. And so in the 1880s, they quickly decided that they just appeared. The, the, the only part of the world left where Europeans could colonize was the Southwest Pacific. So they arrived here and started nabbing bits of New Guinea. In fact, um, the uh, northeastern tip of the island of, of Papua in those times after the Germans had it uh, was called Kaiser Wilhelm's Land. And they established a nice big capital city on Rabaul on this big long island, a couple of hundred k's off the um, uh, um, coast of the, the northern coast of New Guinea, and they were, and the, then the, the Brits turned up, and they had a chunk of it as well. But then after World War One, Germany lost all those colonies, of course, and two countries popped up at Versailles, saying, "You know those old German colonies that they can't have anymore? Can we have them?" and almost disinterestedly the kind of um the power brokers of the the, the united kingdom and america and france saw this the australian delegation led by our prime prime minister billy hughes turn up and say oh yeah well, whatever what do you want them for you can't do anything with them he says, oh no we'll have them so australia in the early 1920s acquired as mandated territories which is a strange term. I've never quite got to the bottom, David, of what a mandated territory was. It was sort of like a colony uh, where we had to do all the work and got none of the benefits, basically. And the British were very happy for us to do this because they gave us a few bits and pieces as well. So that's why Australia in the early 1920s had all these chunks of territory to Australia's north that we then began to populate because there were things that we could actually uh, use to benefit us, these industries like growing coconut trees for copra, growing, growing rubber, growing uh, coffee, which was becoming very popular. But of course, the other country at Versailles that put their hand up to have some of these countries was Japan. And Billy Hughes actually knew this. I mean, he was a, he was a terribly racist old bugger, as most people were back in those days. But he was sort of on the money, and in the book, I discovered all these letters that he was writing to the um, to London, saying, "You don't realise that. I mean, Tokyo is a long way from you, but it's only a couple of days sailing from the Australian mainland, and you seem to be turning a blind eye to the fact that Japan is militarising quickly and efficiently, and they're aiming at us." and London went, yes, yes, Mr. Hughes, of course they are. Japan was our friend in World War One. Why would they want to bother anyone, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, Japan was playing a very long game that had started going back long before the end of the 19th century. So then we go into the 1930s where what happened is that these group of Australian men and, and, and some women, uh, often the uh, uh, wives and the families of people, uh, kind of colonize these new territories of New Guinea, part of the Solomons, Bougainville and Rabaul, um, uh, by being 
both industrialists up there in the fact that they had uh, that they were plantation owners, giving the local population reasonably good employment, and the race relations seemed to be pretty fair um, for the times, at least the um, um, native people up up there who you know, without which these industries couldn't have existed, were, were, were paid fairly well, and the relations were pretty harmonious. Um, they sort of set to work. There were also, because it was Australian territories, there was also this whole industry of administration. So there were the police, police officers, um, patrol officers, uh, administrative assistants, um, white European Australians, and some Brits that basically ran the place doing their best to impose Western law to the extent that it could be imposed up there, which in some parts of that part of the world, which is very remote and very rugged, was pretty minimal. But they seem to have um, a kind of a reasonably benign situation where there was this population of several hundred Australians doing various activities, official and private, in these islands to which I um, uh, was talking about before. Now, at the same time, the gradual realisation that our coastal defences were basically non-existent was coming to be realised in the very slow-moving annals of Australian intelligence and defence in the 1920s. It was estimated that during, and this had become a card because reports had come in, during World War One, the German Navy had basically been sailing up and down and around Australia's coast at will, with nobody even realising that they were even there. And a report came out in about 1921 with a quote from it, which I found, which made me burst out laughing, um, if it wasn't for the serious of it. They estimated that at various parts of the Australian coast, an enemy formation up to the, up to the strength of a division could be landed at various parts of the Australian coastline, and it would be, quote, several months before anybody knew they were there, <laughs> which was a situation that was pretty intolerable, really. And they started, that was uh, the Navy, the, the Royal Australian Navy then decided, look, we need some intelligence system here. So we need to actually get something going. So they got the Brits in to help them. And then they realised that the main problem is that our border is completely porous. We don't. There was no radar. There was no. Um, there, there, there wasn't the money. During this is the twenties and the depression, especially when the depression hit. There was nothing. We had. We, we, we had. You know, five and sixpence to basically guard the whole country. Uh, there was. There was no facilities to have permanent naval stations on any of these places. We didn't even have the ships to put there so what was the point we did however it was realized have this group of civilians that were in situ in place with no with extensive local knowledge in these areas to our north new britain new ireland new guinea the mainland and then over into the solomons further out to the east so it was decided um, uh, by uh, one of the great founders of the royal australian navy that um, um, Admiral, um, Admiral Collins had, had a, a part to do with it. He said, why don't we just use these people? Why don't we, we probably wouldn't even have to pay them in typical Australian government parsimonious manner. We can just sort of offer them the opportunity of serving their country 
and they can keep a watch on the coast. Um, hence the word coast watches gradually, logically came into being. So this very small and very slowly in the 1930s, this network of people were approached very slowly, um, very kind of cautiously, um, and all of them basically said, oh, yes, certainly I'll do that. The, the network started to be put together like a very, very sort of a, 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 a one little a vein of a jigsaw puzzle going across the board. That's certainly not filling in the board, David, not at all. But they got these people who were uh, on the northern Australian coast uh, um, and in New Guinea on the Australian coast, it was people like... Um, station owners, postmasters, to have this kind of slightly secret job. Look, if anything weird turns up, just give us a call, basically. And that's almost all, all, all it was. In the um, 1920s, before radios became readily available, they were basically uh, required to write letters <laughs> to Melbourne, to uh, St Kilda Barracks, Melbourne, like basically head of intelligence, St Kilda Barracks, Melbourne, put a stamp on it and eventually it would get there. Oh, I saw a strange ship turning up the other day. Uh, I didn't know what it was, but so, or some strange people were hanging around the coast. I don't know what they were. And it was actually remarkably efficient. It was very slow, but gradually this picture was what, what was happening to our north was starting to emerge and piece together in St Kilda Barracks. This was fine. <coughs> Uh, in uh, peacetime, and it was even fine when the Second World War started to erupt in Europe, although less so, but it was uh, not a situation that was in any way adequate when Japan entered the Second World War, as we know, in December 1941. Now, I'm jumping ahead a bit because some people at least saw that coming. In fact, today we're speaking, it's the 7th of December, so how ironic is that? Oh, of course it is. Absolutely. Now, it was, of course, realised by uh, uh, some in the Australian defence intelligence community, such as it was, that we need a lot more than what we have. And in the late 1930s, the um, head of um, naval intelligence, Lieutenant Commander Cocky Long, who is a remarkable fellow, who is really like a James Bond character, who was... Um, uh, who had actually worked in the First World War, he, he, he'd been in the First World War and worked in British intelligence in the, in the 20s, came back to Australia to head up naval intelligence in the, in the late 20s and 30s and realised that uh, there was going to be a serious um, rupture in Australia's intelligence capabilities unless we did something about uh, the fact that we didn't know, had no um, uh, basically way of keeping tabs on what was happening to our territories in the north. He then did one of the most cleverest um, thank God we had some decent people there, and uh, 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 Long was one of them. He had the brilliant notion of recruiting one of his 1912 Royal Australian Navy original classmates, a fellow called Eric um, Felt. Now, Eric Felt <coughs> had been in the air, like, was one of the 1912 original class of the Royal Australian Navy, went on to serve briefly in the, in the First World War, came back to Australia, hung around, hung around in the Navy for a bit, then decided to cash in his chips. He actually put himself on the reserve list at age 24 and went up to New Guinea and became a patrol officer and loved the life. There was this group of expats that 
seemed to love the tropics. They loved being up there. They, they loved being away from the kind of what they regard as the, the rather sort of boring and stultifying atmosphere of Australian society in the 20s and 30s, which was, you know, a lovely place to live, but probably not very interesting for someone who wanted adventure. So Felt was summoned to Melbourne. He actually happened to be on leave in Brisbane in the first couple of days, literally, of the Second World War in 1939, summoned to um, um, St Kilda Barracks, where his old mate Long sat him down and said, Eric, we think you might be good for a job we're looking for. We need to recruit a network of essentially all you blokes that are up there doing stuff. We need your know-how and we need it quickly and we need people to keep an eye on essentially what the Japanese we suspect are going to be doing in the next uh, year or couple of years. It's interesting. Um, those who knew Japan was going to enter the war at some stage um, were uh, had by December, by December 41, had decided that Japan wasn't going to end because everybody thought Japan was going to come into the war, but most people who knew thought it was going to be a year earlier. Everybody thought Japan was going to enter World War II in 1940, those who knew. So by the time, um, so this is why the urgency to get a spy network, which is what it became, uh, um, into position was so acute. Eric Felt said, absolutely, I'm the man for the job, went back to New Guinea and began recruiting. He basically spent six weeks in uh, the, the, the last so few weeks of 1939 crisscrossing the territories he knew very well, recruiting, signing up all the people he could think of, all the people he knew, which was extensive. He'd been a patrol officer in the highlands of New Guinea in the 30s. He was the perfect man for the job. He was a bit of a maverick. Uh, he had enormous energy. In fact, he basically uh, worked himself a couple of years later into exhaustion and, and had to quit but in the meantime he headed up the coast watchers that's what they were called they were a secret secret network of civilians whose job was to basically observe watch the coast long uh, um sorry uh, um eric felt decided early though that he didn't want to risk the lives of his people uh in any kind of military battle situation so he expressed very, very fervently that we are a passive organization. He actually nicknamed the whole Coast Watchers. The codename was it for Fer was Ferdinand. And he derived that from a Walt Disney cartoon about the bull, the Spanish bullfighting bull who doesn't want to fight. He just wants to sit, sit under the trees and uh, smell the flowers. It was a cartoon that came out that was a big hit in just before the war. Uh, which is available on YouTube. It's very charming, actually. But that's what Felt wanted his Coast Watchers to be. Keep your heads down. Be like a spider. In fact, one of the Coast Watchers, um, uh, Reg Evans, who went on to in do some incredible work later, he was a Coast Watcher. He described the Coast Watchers thus. A Coast Watcher's work is to sit in hiding like a spider, right in the web of the enemy, unseen and unheard. We became the eyes and ears of the Pacific. And so they did. David, so they did. These remarkable men from all sorts of walks of life, not military men, some had been former military men, but their job 
situated strategically across these Australian territories was from just a few weeks after the war started. Their sort of job on the side, as it were, was to keep an eye on things. Now, not all Coast Watchers were men, were they? There was only one official female Coast Watcher. However, in the book, I have included... I mean, there should have been far more women Coast Watchers. If they'd had the wherewithal to um, employ some of the women there, the Coast Watchers would have been even more efficient because those uh, one particular official Coast Watcher woman, uh, a guy called a woman called um, um, Ruby Boys, <coughs> was situated with her husband out on one of the most outlying volcanic islands of um, the Solomons called. Vanatoro, and it happened to be when a lot of the Americans came in, ideally situated to give weather reports. That's just one of the things that the um, Coast Watchers did. They gave incredibly important weather. This is quite the days before weather satellites or weather or balloons or anything like that. You had to have someone on the spot telling you what was happening. Ruby Boys was on this island uh, living on her plan plantation with her husband who um, uh, died, and she became a widow or no sorry he got sick sorry he got sick and had to be evacuated and couldn't remain on the island she stayed behind to run the business um uh, early in the war um and she took over the coast watching and did an incredibly good job and the americans actually just jumping ahead a bit admiral halsey came to rely on mrs boys as he called her to give weather reports in this incredibly remote part of the Solomons through which the United States Navy had to fight. And they needed to know what weather they were heading into. And the only way sometimes was to get Ruby to give a weather report. She did it three times a day, just looking out the window and observing, observing what was happening. And that's all they needed. The Japanese knew she was there and actually found her radio um, uh, frequency and would send her threatening um, uh, um, um, messages. It was by being trolled, you know, in these days. But literally, there's what one time she was giving a report and she just shut off, and then and then the the the, the set started to glow again because there was an incoming uh, uh, voice message, which was very rare because usually it was one way traffic, and the voice got, and the voice came over in a in a in a, in a thick uh, Japanese accent. Mrs. Boy, we know you are out there. The Japanese commander will find you. It was like, and she, it, it didn't, it didn't, she said it was actually very scary. And she was just a middle-aged lady, a kind of a dumpy middle-aged lady in her late 40s, early 50s. Uh, but she stayed out there. And uh, Admiral Halsey, in fact, after the war or at the war's end, actually diverted his uh, Catalina flying boat to land at her lagoon to personally thank her. It's a lovely story. And that concludes part one of our podcast. You can join us for part two next week where we continue to talk to Michael Veach about his new book, Australia's Secret Army, the story of the Coast Watchers, the unsung heroes of Australia's armed forces during World War II. The book is available through Amazon and most good bookstores. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. And if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. Your reviews help others find our podcast. And you can help support this podcast via Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee. The links are on our website and Facebook page and your support helps us with the production of this podcast. 
season's greetings and a happy new year and thanks for listening.